The Classic Comics Forum Podcast presents issue number 15, Avengers number 16 to 28, Cap's Kooky Quartet, part one. Welcome to the Classic Comics Forum Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Scott Harris. And today, I'm joined by Classic Comics Forum member Hoosier X to discuss the seminal Silver Age superhero run Avengers number 16 to 28 by Stan Lee. Better known to fans as the Cap's kooky quartet era of Avengers, issues 16 to 28 contain one of the most groundbreaking runs in superhero comics, where Stan Lee wrote almost all of the main characters out of the title and replaced them all with supervillains. It was one of Stan's most interesting and controversial storylines of all the titles that he wrote for Marvel in the mid-60s, and it would prove to be a fan favorite, turning Hawkeye, Quicksilver, and the Scarlet Witch from grade B villains into A-list superheroes. It would also prove to be a creative windfall for Stan as it shook up the title, bringing out of a creative rut and inspiring some of the best Avengers stories of Stan's tenure. In this first part of our two-part discussion, Hoosier X and I will take a look at issues 16 through 19, including The Old Order Changeth, the introduction of the swordsman, and some fantastic art by Don Heck and Wally Wood. But first, as always, I'll be talking to Hoosier X about his collecting influences to provide a little bit of context about where he's coming from when we break down the seminal run of Avengers. So we're going to jump right into it. Here's my conversation with Hoosier X, and I hope you enjoy So other than Avengers number 16 to 28, what was the last comic book that you read? I read Batman 28, the the, the Rebirth Batman. Oh, okay. Because I do, I do still read a, a few new comics. Um, and I do still read Batman because, you know, I'm just such a big Batman fan. But it, it's it, it was, yeah, Batman number 28 was terrible. <laughs> it was so terrible. They, they've got the War of the Jokes and the Riddles where the Joker and the Riddler have both, they're fighting a big, weird gang war over who gets to kill the Batman. And uh, uh, they've uh, all the villains are sort of being forced to take sides. And it's one of those, uh, I mean, I kind of like this sometimes, where they do Gotham City is just some horrible, evil, uh, uh, you, you know, madhouse, you know, ur- the urban madhouse. And, and, but they just, they do, it to, they do it so often, though, that no one would live there. No one would ever live in Gotham City. And whenever I read a really bad one, I just it just really makes me roll my eyes at why are they doing this again? Because you know they've like they've completely split up this they they've completely split up Gotham City, where the the Joker runs the West Side and the Riddler runs the East Side. I don't know it, it stretches credibility way too much and isn't really doesn't even begin to be well written enough to even begin to explain it. An awful lot happens between issues, and so they don't actually have to explain how this is even possible or how it gets done. It's just oh they've split it up and here's a scene with the Joker and his his. His minions are, you know, Solomon Grundy and the Penguin, and I don't know. I, th- I think Poison Ivy's with the Riddler, and Clayface is with the Riddler, and the Mad Hatter, and Two Face is the Riddler's, you know, one of the Riddler's deputy deputies. And the Riddler's, you know, I mean, I mean, Two Face should be one of the guys in charge. I, I have not been real happy with it. Well, you sold me on not reading it, so <laughs> that's a pet peeve of mine. Is when they have these big storylines where they just 
skip all the stuff. That uh, that was a one of the many complaints I had about the original Civil War series ten years ago is that every issue is basically just like a dumbass fight scene, and then the explanation for why anybody was doing anything was in nineteen different crossovers and tie-ins that you had to read supplemental stuff to have any idea why anybody was supposedly doing stuff in the main series. Uh, I just didn't, find it lazy. I didn't. Oh yeah, I didn't read Civil War. But I was following, uh, I'm trying to remember which blogger that was that, that, that did like, a, you know, here's all you need to, about, need to know about the Civil War. And he would have like one or two panels from each, you know, you, you know from each uh, chapter with like humorous comments that from what little Civil War I did read, he, you could follow the story from his comments. But it was also funny because he was really making fun of it. And that's, you know, uh, that's when I saw Captain America, the Civil War. Um, I knew that they had, for a change, the, the movies had changed things in the comic book to make it better, which does not happen very often. Yeah, I mean, I have some issues with the movie, but it's a million times better than the comic. Civil War is just, I won't read anything by Mark Millar anymore. He's horrible. Well, now that we've gone over the last comic you read, what was the first comic that you ever read? I have really, really vague memories of being about four or five years old. And my, I think maybe my cousins were visiting and they had some comics. And I remember, you know, years and years later when I was looking at like the Marvel Comics Index, I said, we, we had that comic. And it was, I think it's Avengers number 63 with uh, the, the, first, the first one where Hawkeye becomes Goliath. Um, but when I was, when I actually read the issue, I don't know, a few months ago, I read I read it online. I had never read it before, and I even though I recognized the cover and, and not being able to read, I I called the Black Panther Catman. I remember that, but the story wasn't the least bit familiar. So I didn't. I don't think I actually I didn't actually read it, or no, not that I remember. And I had a I had a whole bunch of uh, like years after that, uh, I had a, f- a bunch of Harvey comics. I remember really liking like Hot Stuff. I still love Hot Stuff. I don't read it or anything. I'm not even sure it's still published, but Hot Stuff just kind of trips me out. And Little Dot and uh, Little Lotta and Baby Huey. I remember having a stack of really, really torn up Harvey comics. But the, the first one uh, that really got me started, uh, you know, that, that you know, got me hooked on like Marvel Comics in the 70s was Jungle Action number 17, um, which is, uh, you know, 1975. It's the end of the... You know the the epic. I think it's twelve issues. Panther's Rage. For some reason, I, I just saw that cover with uh, with the Black Panther. He's fighting with Eric Killmonger, this big tall dude with this like you know this strap around his chest with all these like knives sticking out on him. You don't even know how he can walk through a room with it. And there's these you know t- Tyrannosaurus Rex that are settled. They're in the background and they've got, I don't know, guns on them and stuff. And I said, man, that looks pretty darned awesome. So I picked that up. And within a, within a few, uh, you know, a few months, I, I, I picked up Daredevil. I kept reading Jungle Action. Uh, I was reading like Hulk, Fantastic Four, The Avengers, Spider-Man. I didn't really start reading very many DCs until a little bit after that. It's interesting because you know, just from reading your stuff on the forums, I think of you more as a DC kind of guy. In later years, I have been much more of a DC kind of guy, and I, and I think that's just because that you know when I read those Marvel comics from about 1975 up into like the mid to late 80s, it was after Secret Wars that I, I mean I read a few of the comics a little you know a little bit after Secret Wars, but then they just started changing everything so much that they weren't by the late 80s they weren't really the, the same characters. I mean, Marvel, you know, they have like they they have this universe that starts in, you know, 1939 with Marvel Mystery Comics. They have the exact same continuity into the late 80s 
And when they started changing the characters, these were just characters that I had been sort of, I don't know, practically living with for 12 years. That when they start like doing something like, you know, the clone saga with Ben Riley, um, and then uh, Peter Parker marrying Mary Jane was also something that I wasn't against it per se, but I kind of thought they changed Mary Jane's personality enough to, to make it easier to write was how I kind of felt. Um, that it, I, I actually don't really read, uh, I didn't really read any Marvels, but DC, on the other hand, you know, by the time I was reading Batman, more like when I was 12 or 13 by the late 70s, there were already, I don't know, at least four or five Batman in the comics. And so, you know, when I read a comic book and it's completely different from the Batman, it doesn't really bother me that much. So, so it's, it's, especially as far as, you know, it's like in comics since the 80s, I've read a, like the Legion. I really, I do love the Legion. I've loved the Legion for a long time. Uh, I was really into Green Lantern for a while. Um, but when, when they change it, though, it just doesn't, it's just really easy for me to like, right now when I'm reading these Batmans that I don't really like that much, and it's not really a Batman that I like that much, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me as much the way it does with, with you know, the Marvel comic. So well, I think you've already talked about how much you like Batman. My next question is just what character do you love? The Hulk is another one. The Hulk is another one that I really love the Hulk. Well, I'm curious about that because I can't stand the Hulk. So uh, whenever someone says they love the Hulk, I like part of my brain, there's this cognitive dissonance that just does It's like you're speaking in a different language that I just can't quite comprehend. So what is it about the Hulk that you love? Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with um, the, the Herb Trimpey art. My, my first issue of the Hulk was uh, the first issue after Herb Trimpey laughed. And I, and I bought it for a really long time, and I look back at, like, those Salbacima issues, or Salbacima draws the Hulk for a really, really long time, and I liked it when I was reading it. Uh, but I look back at them, and I kind of, like, I don't know, I don't really, it's not something I really go back to or read over again. But I was buying all the, the back issues, and, uh, and the Hulk just, he, you know, you've got a setup where he's traveling all over the world. He's not just stuck in New York. So he's coming across all these weird little pockets of the, the strangest little things in the Marvel Universe that a lot of them never appeared again or only appeared once or twice. Like on, a, on Steve, Englert's, Steve Englert's run, when they, uh, you know, they, they came across the, the cloud city of, you know, the, the, bird pe- the bird people that created Red Raven, their, their cloud city is still floating around. And... Uh, the Hulk is fighting the Harpy, and they come across the Cloud City, and they meet the Bye Beast. And the Bye Beast is this weird, big brown monster who's got like a sort of a, on his head. He's got like a second head on top of the head. So he's got these two personalities, and I and I love that stuff. I love this how how c- compared to an awful lot of the other the other comics that I was reading the Marvel at the time, you know, Iron Man and the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man, I always loved how random and weird the Hulk was an awful lot of the time. See, for me, we're going to actually be talking about this shortly when we get into Avengers 17. I personally find the Hulk to be an interesting catalyst uh, for stories for other people. I think he's an interesting character for other characters to play off of. But I just don't find the Hulk himself to be interesting as a character, so I get tired of his solo stories very quickly. My first issue, for what it's worth, was Hulk 314, I think it was maybe Byrne's first issue on the series. So that's when I was reading the Byrne run, and I didn't last that long. I think my last issue was... It might have been 340, actually, the uh, famous McFarlane one with Wolverine. I think I got that far, but, the, but that was it for me. Yeah, I remember those burn issues. 
I w- I didn't really read the Hulk much much after that. I certainly didn't. Get, I certainly didn't get up to McFarlane, and I never really did like the the gray, the mixer, Mister Fix It Hulk. So, what character do you hate? I've come to really hate Wolverine. <laughs> I think a lot of people say that though, don't they? <laughs> Yeah, we get a lot of Wolverine, Punisher, Deadpool. I think some combination of those three. I think everybody has said so far, which um, I'm all for. Which I, you know, I totally agree with. So uh, Logan, the, the the recent movie Logan, has uh, has like almost completely redeemed uh, Wolverine. Sort of, sort of like in my eyes. Um, I I was. Uh, I really hadn't planned on going to Logan, um, but I just was hearing so much about it and had a friend that really, really wanted to go see it and ended up going. And uh, I've been having an argument with one of my friends who goes to the movies a lot and likes comics. He's been calling it the best superhero movie ever made. And I'm saying, you know what? It's not really a superhero movie. I completely agree with you there. I'm trying to think of another character that I that I really hate. Uh, I mean, Deadpool. I, I I was fairly indifferent to Deadpool, but I you know I saw the you know I saw the movie and really liked the movie a lot. And then the and the Punisher. I mean, there are are so many bad bad Punisher appearances. But I was around. I mean, I I, I wasn't around for his first appearance. But I, when I, you know, when I used to like go to like this this used bookstore that my dad would go to, they would they had a box of comics behind the counter, and they were all torn out. This is like you know really before there were comic shops in more than a very few places, and you could get like these comics were two for a quarter, and some of them would be like really trash with the cover barely hanging on and the Marvel value stamps all cut out, and and some of them would be like somebody read it once and then went ahead and, and traded it in. And uh, I got a Spider-Man number 129 for 12 and a half, 12 and a half cents in 1976. It's, it's not in too bad a condition, you know, for, for some of the other books that I bought there. You know, so, so I remember, I mean, I, by the time he appeared, the Punisher appeared in like number 160 or 161 with the Nightcrawler. That's why well, I don't know what, maybe his third or fourth appearance. And that was before they really just just wrung everything they could out of the Punisher. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I just, I just have you know fond memories of his early days to really hate him. Moving from characters to creators, uh, who's a creator that you think is underrated? You know, uh, uh, these Avengers that we're reading right now brings up Don Hack. Uh, I mean, I, I sometimes see people like really, really putting Don Hack down as like someone who they just don't, you know, they just don't really like at all or don't think is very good at all. And what we're reading right now. The, when he's inked by Wally Wood and Frank Giacoya and, uh, and uh, John Romita, like like you mentioned, uh, those are really good. I mean, I, I've been reading those. It's been a while since I read them, and I've been reading those over the last few days. And I was looking at that, going, "Man, this is this is really really good art. This is like this is as good as anything John Buscema did. Not and certainly not like." You know, acting like I don't like John Buscema. John Buscema is great, but Don Heck is looking pretty good right here. Another guy I think is really underrated is George Tuska. You know, he did all those Iron Mans, and I read so many Iron Mans with all this this George Tuska art. And even in the '70s, he I remember him doing the Champions, and uh, I think he's I think he's still doing Iron Man way into the '70s too. Yeah, I agree with Don Heck. Don Heck is someone who, you know, when I started reading in the '80s. He was kind of at the end of his career. He had a bad reputation, and a couple things of his that I saw at that time, I didn't really care for. So when I was reading these issues as a kid, because as we'll discuss in a minute, I, I did end up getting a lot of the kooky quartet issues when I was pretty new to comics. Didn't really appreciate the art, but he's grown on me a lot over the years. I 
you know, read all the, his Wonder Woman stuff from the early to mid-80s a while ago, and it's really good. And seeing some of the non-superhero work that he did in the 50s, pre-code stuff, some of that stuff is really good. He, he did a lot of really good work, and I think he suffered a little bit from having the rotating inkers. Some of them were really good, and then some of them maybe not so much. But I feel like, yeah, I agree, he's he's pretty underrated. Another guy I think is underrated is Frank Robbins. Uh, I think uh, Frank Robbins, I mean, I, I remember when I you know reading the Avengers, uh, in, Invaders when I was a kid, and, and sort of like, oh, I don't know about this guy. But he kind of grew on me, and now when I see Frank Robbins, like, you know, I, I, I love Batman so much, and I read all those old issues of Detective Comics, and Frank Robbins was writing most of those most of those those one shots uh, in detective comics in the early 70s and every once in a while he, he does the art on one of them and uh, as a writer I think he's really good uh, I'm not you know when they, they kind of make a big deal out of Dennis O'Neill but Frank Robbins is also doing a lot of one shots and sometimes they're kind of silly and don't quite work but he's you know he's trying to do like trying to do these one shot stories and detective comics is split up into detective or Batman and then Batgirl so he's doing these like you know 15 page stories and when they work they're really good and then every, and every once in a while he draws one he you know he was the first writer on on a man bat you know he created man bat and every once in a while he draws a man bat story and i love those i i i don't i'm not sure i, I like i think i kind of like the as great as neil adams is i just love how like quirky and all those those weird angles on the arms there's so much action in those frank robbins stories yeah, I think Frank Robbins, his art is is definitely idiosyncratic, and I don't think it fits everything for me personally. Like, um, you know, I talked about with the Captain when we were doing our look at the Steve Englehart Captain America, Frank Robbins coming in on that series was really jarring. But on some other books, it really works, and I agree with you. I haven't really read that much stuff um, that he wrote but he one issue he wrote Sinister House of Secret Love number three. He did this uh, like 48 page gothic romance story where he wrote it and Alex Toth did the art and it's just fantastic. Just a great combination. Uh, Robbins is someone who's definitely on my radar is someone I need to to look into a little bit more. So who's a creator that you think is overrated? Um, I, I heard a lot of people talking about Grant Morrison, but I, I can't be too hard on Grant Morrison as much as, as stupid. His Batman is so bad. I really can't even deal with his Batman, but I love All-Star Superman. Uh, and I remember like uh, uh, I bought Flex Mentala when it first came out. I have some friends that really, really like Grant Morrison, and when I was like talking about you know Grant Morrison not liking him, they sent me an, a, a copy of Super Gods, his book, and that sure didn't make me think any more highly of him. Super Gods is just uh, just lots of lots of obvious things, and it is kind of interesting when he talks about the stuff he's personally involved in. I think it's pretty interesting, but almost everything he says about the '40s and the '50s and the '60s is just you know, he, he gets it slightly wrong at times. And some of the things that he thinks are kind of profound are kind of like stuff that I think almost everybody who's thought about those comics has thought of. And and I also love the part where he compares Stan Lee to Mussolini. That's a, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think he needed an editor for that. But like I said, I liked All-Star Superman. Uh, a guy who I've come to think is like really overrated. I have a feeling this is going to be controversial. <laughs> is a uh, John Byrne. <laughs> I was his, I read so much John Byrne. Uh you know, uh, the X-Men. The X-Men is still great. I I I you know, I've read the uh 
I was getting some of those from the library because I don't have the original com- comics anymore. But I was getting like Marvel Masterworks, you know, for uh, you know for those the issues, you know, the when he started up to about issue one twenty. I read those fairly recently, and those really hold up. But he started he, when he after he became a writer. Uh, I read a lot of that stuff when it came out, and I really liked it then. But just from following all the way through, like his Superman, and when he did Wonder Woman, and the Next Man. And reading like the you know the him like you know like commenting on things and he just started to come off as really really full of himself and really egotistical and uh, and when I would go back and read some of that stuff uh, like I, I, I the next man just is unreadable and when I was reading his Wonder Woman issues a couple of years ago I just went man these are really not very good at all the right the, and even when his art gets like way over like way over stylized. I can't even imagine what what John Byrne's art looks like now, but I thought Wonder Woman when I was rereading it, it just the art, the writing was bad, and it actually kind of looks ugly. And uh, the the Fantastic Four that everybody loves so much, like all the good stuff, is like sort of playing off of like you know what what Stan Lee and Jack Kirby did, and but an awful lot of it is. I was finding it not liking it as much, you know, reading it in, uh, you know, 2005 as I did like back in the 80s. Well, I loathe John Byrne. So I'm I'm buying what you're selling here. I can't stand John Byrne. Totally agree with everything you're saying. I think he was great as an artist and he was really good co-plotting like X-Men and stuff. But when he got popular enough to become powerful and be able to do everything he wanted in the comics that egotism really started to come through in the stories and i thought he got bad very quickly like it's been a long time since i've read a superman but i have no interest in ever reading it again the the bits and pieces i've read here and there recently do nothing for me i've only read a little of his wonder woman but it's the same thing i just total totally not interested what really did it for me was his run on west coast avengers which I thought was incredibly arrogant and destructive and just no redeeming qualities to that run at all, with the possible exception of bringing back the original Human Torch. But yeah, I mean, Byrne is just like an egotistical blowhard, and that would be fine if he was still doing good work, but he infuses all of his stuff with his worldview, and that's when you end up with stuff like the, um, the thing where Superman and Big Barda are in the porno together because he was having like a feud with Jack Kirby or something. I mean, that's just, that is so, just that is so bad. And that story is so bad. I could hardly, I could hardly believe it. Yeah. So I can't stand burn. So uh, if you were going to be stranded on a desert Island, what's the one thing, comic book story or series or compilation or whatever that you would bring with you to read? Uh, if there was just one comic book, uh, amazing Spider-Man annual number one is uh, is, is a, a big, strong first choice. Have you ever read that one? Is that the Sinister Six? That's the Sinister Six. Mm, I think I have read it a long time ago. I'm not really yeah, a big Spider-Man fan, so... They used to have those great those Marvel Treasury editions, and uh, they had a Marvel Special Edition number one that came out, I don't know, f- maybe around six months after I had you know, started getting comics. And I remember, like, you know, not, you know, like, seeing it, um, on the newsstand and only, you know, like looking at, you know, like comic books were I think 30 cents. So I had an, I had enough to buy three or four comic books or to buy Marvel special edition number one. And I bought Marvel special edition number one. And it has the, the first Spider-Man annual 
Spider-Man number six with the first appearance of the Lizard, and then uh, Spider-Man number thirty-five with the, the second appearance of the Molten Man. Uh, and I remember, like you know, taking that home and not regretting only buying one thing. And the, you know, the, those those Treasury editions were like you know, you'd spread them out on the on the ground and just lay there with your like you know your hands your hands around your like chin and leaning on your hands like that and just read them and turning the page. Those were great. And yeah, and I've I've loved. Uh, I've loved that that Sinister Six, that first appearance of the Sinister Six ever since. All right, final question. If you could do any book, dream book, uh, any writer, any artist, any characters, creators don't have to be alive, anything you want, total fantasy, what would your dream book be? I really love the Freedom Fighters. And I and I really cannot hard. There's almost nothing to like about any series that has ever had the Freedom Fighters. So a, a Freedom Fighters series. I'm trying to think about an artist and a writer. I I, w- I was thinking like maybe um, Amanda Connor is the artist for a writer. Somebody who really understands the Golden Age and those characters. I'm tempted to just say Roy Thomas, um, except for the, probably one of the one of the the one things that he did that really kind of made me like roll my eyes was the way he treated the first Freedom Fighters back when they were in the All-Star Squadron and then they had that, that first set of Freedom Fighters. But I could see that. I could see Roy Thomas and Amanda Connor doing a Freedom Fighters series. Yeah, I, I liked Freedom Fighters too, and I agree. Uh, I like the concept better than the reality in terms of what DC has done with those characters since they first since they acquired them from quality back in the 50s. don't think they ever really gave them their due. I liked the idea of, um, was it Earth X? Is that what they were called? The, yes. I liked that idea where they were on a world where the Nazis won and they were like uh, a resistance group. I thought that was cool, but uh, the issues I've read, the stories didn't quite live up to the premise. Yeah, that would be interesting. All right, uh, so we've gotten through the questions. I think we're ready to tackle the Avengers. So the way the story goes, I don't know if this is apocryphal or, or what, but the general common belief is that by issue 15 of the Avengers, Stan Lee was getting confused. He was doing something with continuity that had never really been done with comics before. He was writing all of the characters at Marvel, and he was weaving all their stories together in this huge tapestry, doing some some really crazy stuff with continuity, like, you know, combining the origins of Kang and Rama Tut and Doctor Doom and debuting the same character in two different titles and two different time periods on the same issue like he did in issue six with Baron Zemo. And so by issue 15, Stan was was getting a little confused figuring out how the main characters were doing what they were doing in Avengers at the same time that they were supposed to be doing things in their solo books. Because at that time, Thor had his own title, Iron Man had his own title, Giant Man and the Wasp still had their own series and Tales to Astonish. Captain America had his own series in the split book with Iron Man, but a lot of his stories at that time were taking place back during World War II, so they weren't actually causing a continuity issue for Stan. So, again, I don't know for sure if this is true, but this is sort of the story that we've been given. Uh, I, I kind of wonder, um, I, I got the Marvel Masterworks for 11 through 20 a few years ago, and there were quite a few of those that I hadn't read before, and it really struck me how really, really bad some of those stories are. <laughs> that number 11 is the second issue of Kang, and for some reason they go to a Mayan temple, and somehow Spider-Man steals an airplane and, and flies up to, to save them from the, the Spider-Man robot created by Kang. And then number 12 has got this really strange uh, uh, team-up between the Mole Man and the Red Ghost. Number 13 is quite a bit better. That's the first Count Nefaria. 
Number 14 is just really awful. I'm trying to remember exactly what happens in it, but that's the one where the wasp has been injured and they're trying to find like the, the only doctor that can do the operation that will save her. Yeah, and there's like an alien invasion too. I don't remember that's any other right. details other than that. That's Yeah, that's not one I was looking at that closely when I was flipping through it, but I was thinking, oh yeah, I remember. And, and I always kind of wondered if, I mean, I've, I've heard what you're saying and it does completely make sense, but I've always wondered if there wasn't just a little bit of a, you know, having a little bit of trouble finding a plausible uh, menace, you know, for the for the Avengers in every issue. That when you you've got Thor and Iron Man, and uh, I mean, you know, and, and especially Thor. Just having Thor around, it's kind of like you know the way that the Justice League is sometimes, where Superman suddenly doesn't have all of all the isn't, isn't as powerful because you have to have something for you know Batman and the Green Arrow to do. Yeah, you could be right, and we're going to talk about that actually right at the beginning of sixteen. There, if Thor does something that perfectly illustrates your point. The other thing that I think is interesting reading the first 15 issues is once Captain America is in the series, he does sort of become the focus of a lot of the stories. And with issue 15, at the end of that issue, his archenemy, Baron Zemo, is killed. And it sort of, in a way, it sort of thematically wraps up the arc that had been going on in those first 15 issues. I think it's sort of a natural break point. Um, at the end of 15, while Captain America is off doing this interesting stuff, the rest of the Avengers are back in the city being faced by the rest of the Masters of Evil. And at the start of issue 16, Stan quickly wraps that storyline up with this totally ridiculous sequence where Iron Man's like, well, there's nothing else we can do. Thor, execute plan D. And <laughs> Thor's like, oh, right. Why didn't I think of this myself? If I spin my hammer really fast, it sucks all the supervillains into an alternate dimension. And I was reading yeah, that going like, why doesn't he just do this awesome. every time? <laughs> I love Avengers 16. I had the, the Marvel milestone for a really long time and just read the hell out of it. There's a giant man's big, weird blue helmet. And, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, and there's the Avengers and the, or, uh, the Enchantress and the Executioner. Like, they know what's going on. So, I don't know, they step to the side or something so they yeah. don't get sucked into the other the other place. And then, and then for some reason, Thor has the power to send them off to this... Uh, it's like reverse physics or something, right? That everything that the other, that the other uh, Masters of Evil try to do, like, backfires on them? Yeah, he, so he teleports them all to another dimension. That right there would end the fight, but they decide, for some reason, the Avengers decide to go with them to this other dimension. And once they're there, all the Avengers do to win is stand there. Because <laughs> it's a reverse dimension where when the Masters of Evil try and attack them, they end up attacking themselves and, like, knocking themselves out. It's great. <laughs> and then Thor just like, yeah, it's ridiculous. They don't even explain what happens after that point. It's just like the next time you see the Avengers, they're like, well, everyone's in jail. Uh, oh, okay. You know, if he had, if Thor had just done that every issue, uh, it would have been a lot simpler. And that power, I don't know. I don't believe it was, had ever used been before that or had ever been, or was ever used again in any context. I've actually seen that used after this. Uh, there was an issue where he did that to um, the absorbing man. Uh, and like, okay. Crusher Creel. <laughs> yeah. So, but it was an ability that just didn't make any sense. And they eventually in the pages of Thor stripped it away. So his hammer can't do that anymore. Cause it's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but it's just like, wh why, why? Do you, do you ever do anything else? Uh, so, yeah, to your point, um, I think it, you might be right. That when you have these guys around that are so powerful, 
there's not necessarily that much to do, especially with some of the menaces that the Avengers have been facing and with like just some random aliens or like Count Nefaria, which is a really good issue 13, but he's just like a guy with a special house. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then they get into the adventures of Captain America coming back from South America. Yeah. And uh, to me, I was just like, I, flip through that pretty quick because he's just like let's fight a bunch of guys here's we need some action in this issue because the rest of the issue is just people talking i've always loved this segment i think i read this for the first time in avengers number 150 because uh, i i started reading avengers with number 144 and then avengers number 150 i guess they were having deadline problems so they've got like you know the current storyline but then they reprint you know huge sections from over the next two issues 150 and 151 they reprint huge sections of uh, avengers number 16 it's because I never read it. I thought that was pretty awesome. And I've always loved that panel where uh, there's a guy being attacked by a, a jaguar and, uh, and Captain America like throws his shield and that, that poor jaguar just clangs right into it. His whole side of his, his body is flat and it shows him running away. Yeah, I mean, if, if Thor were there, he could have just sent the jaguar to another <laughs> dimension. But unfortunately for the jaguar, it was Captain America. So Captain America, while he's trying to get back, the Avengers meet and um, Thor's gone. So they're like, what happened to Thor? So, oh, he's busy. He just the so tribal he just, gods. Yeah, he just vanishes. And Iron Man, Iron Man bizarrely is like, well, if Captain America's not back yet and Thor left, let's disband before anyone else shows up. Like, let's just let's take this opportunity to quickly disband and run away before anything else comes up that forces us to be superheroes. Uh, it seems like a really weird thing, and I could be misremembering this, because there's no way I was going to research it. But in my memory, I think that weird decision is actually a plot point in The Crossing and is referenced as uh, like the first instance where Iron Man had been under Kang's mind control and was trying to destroy the Avengers from within by suggesting they disband here. Again, I, I did not reread The Crossing to study I have, for this podcast. I haven't read The Avengers uh, on, a, on a regular basis of any kind since... Uh, like around issue 290 or so when Marina was in it and, and Dr. Druid was the leader with that great uh, John Buscema, Tom Palmer art. You picked and a great time to stop. For me, <laughs> you know, issue 290 is, is the perfect stop. I think stop that's why I stopped. I think that's why I stopped. They kind of hit a really huge high point with you know the Siege of Avengers Mansion, which I think is just a few issues before that. And it just gets bad really quickly. And the only thing, I, I might have read a few issues here and there, but the only thing that I read of the Avengers since then that I liked was I did read Avengers Forever. Avengers Forever I like a lot. Back to Avengers 16, where the quality is really picking up, because as you say, the issues before this, some of them were really bad. Uh, Iron Man's like, let's all quit. Let's disband the team. No more Avengers. And right then, lucky stroke, Hawkeye breaks <laughs> into the mansion, ties up Jarvis, and then shoots the ropes off of him with Zeros to prove how cool he is. And Iron Man's like, okay, change of plans. Let's get a bunch of supervillains to join the team instead. Yeah, this this actually makes uh, that bit in, in uh, Avengers number 20, where Iron Man shows up and vouches for the swordsman who, you know, at the end of the last issue, he threw Captain America off a building. (laughs) (laughs) But they're all, oh, okay, this sounds like something Iron Man would do. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I actually had a note about that when we get to issue 20, um, but uh, that, that hadn't occurred to me. That it's like that is in keeping with just how bizarre Iron Man. Me neither. I have a note about how stupid it is, but you know, going over this reminds me. Okay, you know, that's that's Iron Man. 
He's he's unpredictable. So it, it makes a little more sense in this context because Iron Man, previous to this, Hawkeye had only appeared twice, and they were both in issues of Tales of Suspense where he was fighting Iron Man. So Iron Man right. actually has a pre-existing relationship with Hawkeye, and he sort of knows that Hawkeye's not necessarily evil, so he's willing to give him a shot here. And then we get a montage where he's trying to recruit like Namor. He's trying to find other replacements to fill out the roster. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to read the series Earth's Mightiest Heroes, which came out, I don't know, 15 years ago now. It was an eight-issue limited series where they took the events of the first 16 issues of Avengers and sort of retold them from a modern perspective. So there's a lot less about the fighting and a lot more character stuff. That sounds interesting. I've never read it. It is pretty interesting. And one of the interesting parts is... They retcon this Hawkeye appearance in a way that I actually found to be pretty interesting. And what happens in Earth's Mightiest Heroes is that Hawkeye is sort of, you know, down on his luck and confused because he wanted to be a hero right from the beginning. In his first appearance, he's trying to be a good guy and he gets mistaken for a jewel thief by the police and then is a wanted man. But it was all a misunderstanding. So he, he's trying to find a way to redeem himself and he ends up saving Jarvis from like a mugger or something. And he and Jarvis become friends. And so this scene in Avengers 16 where he ties up Jarvis and and then shoots the you know the ropes off him and stuff is actually a scheme that he and Jarvis came up with. And Jarvis let him into the mansion as part of this plan to help Hawkeye redeem himself. That seems like a, a really, really complex plan that I... <laughs> yeah, it makes a little more sense if you read the story because this subplot with Hawkeye and Jarvis goes over several issues in in the Earth Mightiest Hero series. Forget exactly why they choose this specific way to to uh, stage this this thing. But the upshot is, here in issue 16, Hawkeye ends up joining the team, and then as the Avengers are putting out this call, uh, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, who had previously been members of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, they come to America and ask if they can join the Avengers to sort of redeem themselves. Now, this doesn't really come out of nowhere because there was a tryout uh, story where Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch ended up going to the Fantastic Four. And yeah, that's uh, Strange Tales number 128 when the, it's the, the, thing in the, the thing in the Human Torch when they're teaming up. Eventually, uh, here in issue 16, Iron Man, uh, I think, just wants to get the hell out of there. Like, he's just, he just he's like, yeah, sure. Yeah, you guys can redeem themselves, become Avengers. I've got, like, a, a hot date. I really just need to get out of this. So Well, he's probably about to have a heart attack. Uh, true, true. Um, so he, they induct Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch and Hawkeye, and then Captain America shows up, and he's like, what the, what the hell's yeah. going on here? And they're like, well, we're all quitting. Uh, here's a bunch of supervillains. Good luck. <laughs> Cap, you know, Cap, uh, he's just ready to take on whatever. It's interesting, like you say, Cap, Cap is ready to take things on. Just real quick, at the end of the issue, they have this thing where they do this press conference, and they, they unveil the new Avengers lineup to the media. This sort of became a tradition in the pages of Avengers where when they'd have like a big lineup change, there'd be like this whole event around it. The old order changes. They didn't do it up. I mean, there's a real long time where they don't do it though. Right. Cause I remember they, when I Avengers 150, they do it at the end of Avengers 150, but I don't think they did it between Avengers 16 and 150. I don't think they did either. Most of the lineup changes during that period were more organic rather than like a wholesale giant lineup right. change, but they did it a number of times after that. They did okay. it. 
where they have whole issues dedicated just to changing the lineup. Issue 181 is a lineup change issue. Issue uh, 211 is a lineup change issue. And when Kurt Busick took over the book after Heroes Are Born in the late 90s, they did an issue uh, that was uh, a lineup change issue. I think it was issue four of the rebooted series. I'm looking at that panel. I love this panel that shows the, the, the heads, the talking heads of the five villains. Yes, I wanted to mention that because it's interesting. We got the villains. It's hilarious. Re- yeah. It's hilarious when you like know like the sort of the context between these characters. <laughs> the, 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 the Enchantress, who I hadn't really noticed it, but when I was reading these issues over again, in the Enchantress, I think by the time of issue number 22, they, the Enchantress has been the villain more often than anybody else. I think that yeah. might be correct, yeah. Because the Executioner is not in those issues, and Baron Zemo was only in, in one issue that the Enchantress wasn't in. You know, So she's like, will the Avengers become stronger or weaker? There's the Executioner saying that they must be destroyed. And there's a Kang saying, I must follow every development, for soon I shall strike again. And he does. It's only like four or five issues later. And then the Mole Man, I almost defeated them once. Next time I shall not fail. And he wastes no time because he's the villain in the next issue. And then there's Immortus who says, The Avengers, I shall never rest until they have been destroyed forever. And his next appearance is... Like 10 years later. <laughs> number, one, number 102 or something like that. Yeah, I, I have a note about that too. I'm like, I mean, oh, yeah. to give him a pass, he is in limbo where time passes differently or doesn't time pass at all. That's Yeah, that's true. That's true. One thing we'll get, we're going to get to right at the end of issue 28 is I find it actually a little strange that Immortus didn't appear earlier because the way they portray the Collector in issue 28, I felt like he was basically just an Immortus stand-in in that issue and they could have just used Immortus if they're going to do that story, but... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so here we are at the end of issue 16, and Stan's done a lot of really sort of bold, innovative moves here. He took all of his major characters that were presumably the whole reason fans are buying the book to start with, you know, Iron Man and Thor, and just writes them all out indiscriminately, replaces them with a bunch of supervillains, and ends up with a lineup of characters who, other than Captain America, have no track record of, like, being able to sell comics, and also, as you mentioned, have a totally different power level one interesting thing that happens here is while these characters have appeared a little bit before they're also kind of a blank slate in terms of their personalities and we're going to see their personalities develop almost immediately because in the next issue 17 we start off with what's going to be the first of a whole bunch of times where the almost every issue we get a several page sequence of everyone yelling at each other yeah yeah it's great it's so great (laughs) that couldn't go on forever uh, what's interesting to me, and, and I actually hadn't noticed in us reading it, but someone pointed out on the forums where in issue 16, Hawkeye kind of has a, like a formal speech pattern. Where he's like, you know, I thank you for the trust you're putting in me. I look forward to fighting alongside you. But then once he's on the team, in yeah, the next put, issue, he's, he's like, he's putting forward his best behavior. Yeah. He's on his very best behavior just to get in good with everybody. But as soon as Iron Man's gone. Yeah. Hawkeye's like, I know that guy can kick my butt, but I don't know any of these other guys can. So I'm going to let the real me shine out. I want to just talk a little bit about the Scarlet Witch for a second. Is one of the reasons that I've that I've have gone through some of these issues so many times is because the Scarlet Witch and, and X Men too. I read those early issues of the X Men. Is because I don't really understand Wanda's powers a lot of the time. She like her weird hex power 
And, and every once in a while, she'll have a little bit of dialogue where it indicates that, you know, she, oh, I will just use a fraction of my hex power and I shall, like, break the lock uh, on this jail that these Latvian policemen have put us in. And then other times, it's like, oops, oh, I accidentally hexed the Submariner, like in, in X-Men number six. So I have gone through and, like, made little notes about, like, what her power is doing in these Avengers issues. Well, as you say, it's. I'm, I'm curious to see what you noted because Stan seemed to write her power as basically whatever plot point needed to be accomplished, her, she, he can just have her do it. There was also a thing where sometimes she'd be like, if I use my hex powers, uh, I'll like get weak and I'll pass out, so I've got to yeah. save up my energy. But then other times that did not really seem to matter. Well, it depends on whether it's a big hex or a little hex. <laughs> Like I just was reading the number uh, number twenty three where she busts out of that uh, that you know Kang's forty fifth century plexiglass cages and then she's like she can't do anything for I don't know like two issues it seems like I want to talk about Wanda in general because uh, like I was starting to say like we get Hawkeye's personality right away and I feel like just over the course of the whole Caps Cookie Quartet from issues sixteen to twenty eight Hawkeye gets the most character development he has the most screen time of the new members he's got a defined personality right away we get his origin story uh, in a couple issues Hawkeye is like a fully formed character. I get the sense, though, that Stan is still feeling his way around Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, and Scarlet Witch, Wanda ends up getting quite a bit of character development, whereas I feel like Quicksilver is almost a complete non-entity throughout this entire run of story. Yeah, he, he butts in and whenever to sort of like a, as a counterpoint to uh, Hawkeye. You know, well, I wouldn't vote for you for leader if Captain America quits. I'd vote for me. Or uh, how dare you talk to my sister that way? He does that a lot. Yeah, and that's basically it. The only thing we learn about him over this entire run is that he likes the circus. He loves the circus. I marked that down too. Because <laughs> that comes up more than once, strangely enough. It's almost like Stan, I can just see Stan with like a big whiteboard in his office and it's got Quicksilver and underneath it is like his bullet points of character <laughs> traits for Quicksilver and it's like likes the circus and then just question marks underneath because he has no idea who this character is. Runs fast, defends Wanza, likes the circus. Yeah, that's somehow it. got somehow got talked into going to see Hello Dolly in issue number uh, twenty one. I think it was. <laughs> All right, so in issue seventeen, uh, plot real quick. The Avengers are like, okay, we're gonna go find the Hulk. Now the Avengers have been searching for the Hulk since issue two. The the whole first storyline is all about the Hulk in issues one through five and crossing over into Fantastic Four twenty five and twenty six. Since then, the Hulk is just wherever he is. And so here the Avengers are like, we're, you know, the Hulk is still our business. We can track him down. Maybe he'll rejoin the team or maybe we'll kick his ass. I don't know one way or another, but either way, we're going to, we're going to go back to this original Avengers mission and prove ourselves as a new team by tracking down the Hulk. And luckily for them, a giant robot just like smashes through the wall of, of the uh, Avengers mansion. And it has a recorded message saying, I know where the Hulk is. I thought that was a weird sequence. Uh, first of all, the Avengers, Captain America leads the team down to the, the Avengers danger room, which I'm not sure has ever shown before or since. <laughs> and then this robot, I mean, granted, a giant robot smashes through the wall, but it's just standing there trying to deliver this recorded message. And the Avengers just like beat the crap out of it and dismantle it. And it doesn't really seem that dangerous. It's just like all it wants to do is tell them to go to the desert. <laughs> Uh, but, yeah. of course, it turns out to be a trap, as you might expect, when a giant robot smashes down your wall. And the Hulk isn't isn't there, but the Mole Man Wanda, is. Wanda hexes it and it falls down. Yeah. 
Wanda's hex makes you clumsy a lot of the time. It does. It's, she's constantly like zapping people and they're like, why did I fall over? Or <laughs> Why am I running into this wall? Yeah, or like <laughs> issue, issue 28, she hexes the beetle as he's about to drop a rock on them and he can't let go of the rock and he just crashes into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I can't let go of this rock all of a sudden. Yeah, everyone just. Oh, like, I love it. Yeah, Wanda's great. I love Wanda. So there, there were certain things about 17 that I liked. I liked um, their use, Stan's use of the continuity of bringing back the sort of events of uh, issue five, where they had the lava men and, and there was the, the mole men and the Hulk and the underground stuff and all this stuff. I did think it was a little bit weird. We kept cutting away to see what the Hulk was doing, even though he's not actually in the story. Yeah. It's, just, it's basically all these cutaways that are just advertising the, Tales the to Astonish. Battle, the battle with, the, with the, the leader in Tales to Astonish. And Stan kept going like, if only the Avengers knew that just a mile away, yeah. the Hulk is being attacked by... And I'm like, they might care, but I don't. Like, I don't, you know... Uh, I just found it weird because those storylines never connected. And at the end, the Hulk gets captured and taken away. And the Avengers never find out he was there. And then they fight the Minotaur. Yes. Then they fight the Minotaur. Um, Which is defeated by Wanda's Hex (laughs) because the Minotaur runs into a a wall and the rocks come down and he gets his uh, horn stuck. One thing I find interesting, and we're going to see this again right in the next issue, 18. I actually found 17 to be kind of boring. It was interesting in the character sense because we start to get the conflict between the members. We start to get a little bit of character development. It's not one that I like very much. The Mole Man, if you read enough of those Marvel comics, you just go, ah, the Mole Man again. And he's pretty much uniformly terrible if he's not in the Fantastic Four. Yeah, I'm I'm not a fan of of Mole Man either, and... Yeah, this issue to me is pretty boring. The action is all pretty boring. It's like they fight a robot, they fight the Minotaur, and then there's the Mole Man. Oh, the horrible threat of the Mole Man. Uh, You know, whatever. (laughs) Some of the character work is interesting, but I do find it interesting that Wanda basically defeats both of the menaces in this issue because in the next issue, skipping ahead just a little bit, spoilers, but at the end of issue 18, everybody (laughs) gets their butt kicked, and then Wanda wins again. (laughs) So the, the plot of issue 18, I'm just going to go over real quick because there are a lot of things that I actually have notes on of, of interest in issue 18, but most of them don't really have anything to do with the plot. Basically, there it's like a communist red menace story where there's this... The country of Sin Kong. May or may not be Vietnam. It's hard to tell. Uh, <laughs> it's clearly Vietnam. Um, it could be Laos. It could be uh, Cambodia. Whatever it is, there's a bunch of nice peasant people because the peasants in these countries are always nice if they only they you know could be freed from the yoke of communism. And there's this gigantic evil communist dictator, and he decides to prove himself by defeating the Avengers. So kind of he doesn't send a giant robot to deliver a message like in issue 17. He gets the message delivered, but it turns out he himself is the giant robot. And he fights each of the Avengers in single combat and defeats them all until he fights Wanda, who had been captured earlier. And so she's like, they're like, I think they blindfolded her. And when she's blindfolded, she doesn't know what she's hexing. (laughs) Which that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) It it happens more than once. But yeah, she just hexes the the robot and like all of his gears go flying out of his ear hole and he just falls <laughs> over and that's the end. And they've proven well, she hexes she hexes once. Her first hex burns up the curtain that the guy operating the robot is behind. And then her second hex destroys the control panel and the robot falls over. <laughs> 
Yeah. So I do find this very interesting, though. Wanda is shown in these early issues to be not only the most powerful member of the team, but also, like, they basically would have lost every fight if Wanda hadn't won. And it stands in stark contrast for me to how the Wasp had been portrayed in the series in the first 15 issues as sort of this flighty, airheaded dipshit. <laughs> well, yeah, but she saves the day in number eight. Okay, when, true. When Kang, when Kang has... Uh, has you know he's completely ignored the wasp and he's uh, you know, everybody else is is comatose and i think he's dissolved iron man's armor or something like that and uh and the wasp he just ignores the wasp and the wasp goes and gets rick jones and the teen brigade and they sneak onto the ship and and free everybody that's about all the wasp is good for though and most of the stories is to go and get help from uh, from other people um yeah and then she all but she but I, I i admire those little bits where she's doing what she can with her limited skill set like that bit in uh, i think it's in in the fantastic four number 26 where she flies in the hulk's ear to annoy <laughs> to annoy him that's not you know like oh that's that's not easy to do. That doesn't look like something that, uh, that a coward would do. No, but I'm seeing a contrast between the way that they're oh, definitely Wanda. And not just between her and Wasp, but also if you look at how the Invisible Girl is portrayed. Yeah. Sort of, they're both like flighty girls, you know, like... And just the way they talk, their speech patterns, their thought patterns, you know, they're worrying, you know, worrying about what they're wearing and, uh, you know, the... Reed Richards is, is telling Sue to, you know, go get him a sandwich. And Wanda's, like, not doing any of that stuff. She has no. one subplot where she thinks that uh, Steve Rogers is really hot. But even that, to me, yeah, like... Yeah, she, she's like, he's so powerful and so masterful, he should be the leader of the Avengers. There's something about that, though, that, it, like, it, even that feels more adult in a way than Wasp being like, Thor's shoulders are so dreamy. Um, <laughs> When I let when I let non comic book people like read, I used to have like the Avengers Masterworks, and I used to like to let people flip through it, and almost everybody would get would read like a, a Wasp quote, like <laughs> like the, like that same Avengers number eight where she goes, uh, "Oh, look at Kang! I'll bet he's dreamy under that helmet." <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't get anything like that from Wanda in these issues, and. She's she's competent and uh, she's also outspoken. There's a number of times where she tells her brother off. She tells Hawkeye off. And on a couple of occasions, she even tells off Captain America when she feels like she has to, although usually she has his back. I I wonder about this because of the Marvel method. Like Stan gets a lot of flack for the way he's written the Wasp and the Invisible Girl and other female characters at this time period. And and justly so. Reading this, though, I, I wonder... Even in some of the later issues uh, before 16, like, you know, 13, 14, whatever, where Don Heck was doing the, the finished pencils, a lot of those had Kirby layouts. Right. But in these issues, we're getting just pure Don Heck. I'm just, I have nothing to support this. But these issues made me wonder with the Marvel method, how much of the sort of empowerment of Wanda is due to the way Don Heck was laying out the stories compared to jack kirby's layouts i don't know just yeah that's interesting because you know uh, that makes that made me think of uh just you know the the difference between like the dc women and the marvel women and i started thinking well you know i mean i I, that's why that's why that wasp in avengers number eight was so fresh in my memory and the other uh the other don heck uh series that was mostly don heck was iron man and uh, and pepper is you know she doesn't have any powers and she starts off as that uh you know that 
that cute kind of weird mousy looking secretary and then she gets like a makeover and becomes a glamour girl but she's like you know trading quips with happy or you know getting involved in the action by having i don't know what the the steam drenches her clothes in one of those and she's like you know oh and, and, and just yelling at happy and even though she's not a superhero and running in and like you know beating anybody up or anything she's still a, a little more like you know actively involved and showing more you know more spirit you know than some of the other uh, uh marvel women yeah, it's interesting. Again, it's too bad Don Heck isn't uh, around anymore to talk about this stuff. I'm sure he would, if he was, he would love to come on my podcast. Um, <laughs> I, I did some research into this, trying to find interviews like with Don Heck or with Stanley about these issues, and I and I kind of struck out. So it's kind of hard at this point to unpack what was going on at Marvel with these writing, but it just really struck me how much more powerful and empowered Wanda seems compared to the other Silver Age superheroines that Stan was writing. I, I think they, they start to get better, though. So a couple other things happen in 18 that are of interest. Uh, Captain America, at the beginning of the issue, we find him uh, just pining away for Nick Fury. It turns out he wrote this love letter to Nick Fury. Yeah, that's begging pretty Begging him to, to join <laughs> S.H.I.E.L.D. And he's just moping around going, oh, when when is Nick Fury <laughs> going to answer me? This actually is going to be uh, an important plot point um, just in the next arc. But uh, we also get our first character development with the rest of the team. And we find out here that Pedro loves the circus. Yeah. While he's off to the circus, Wanda... She goes to see Twelfth Night. Yeah. I, yeah, that's something I had to mark. I have two tickets for Twelfth Night. And Pietro's like, well, I'm going to the circus. <laughs> And Wanda has that, like, uh, you know, oh, I have always dreamed of myself being an actress. I would love to be on the stage. In number 21, which we'll get to, uh, there's a there's a bit where, you know, the, the Avengers have, you know, they've been discredited, they've been forced to disband, and she's just trying to get on the stage. So one thing that I thought was cool was, like, while everyone else is just, like, screwing around, you know, let's go to the Twelfth Night. Let's go to the circus. Let's just mope around and think about how much we love Nick Fury. Hawkeye is busting his ass. Like, yeah. He is trying to develop new gadgets and new arrows. He's training. And uh, I thought that was a really interesting contrast. It's also really funny because he, he builds this uh, gravity arrow that he <laughs> attaches to a safe and then fires the safe right out the window into the <laughs> middle of New York. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's so ridiculous. And then, and then he says, "Now I'll send a moving crew to replace the safe." And nothing about you know where the where the safe landed, or where what it ran into, or he, whether I don't know, maybe Thor ran into it while he was flying overhead. <laughs> Free that was like, I wonder where that safe landed. You know, it's like you know, mystery safe kills nine people on Staten Island Ferry. <laughs> That's that's why I love the Silver Age so much. Just you know, just occasionally something that nobody seemed to care about. <laughs> All right, so now we get a two-parter where the, in issues nineteen to twenty with the swordsman, we get a bunch of stuff happens. Well, I, want, I did want, want to mention oh, yeah. that Go going through these and, and reading these that uh, that uh, what I really the, for me the core of Cap's Kooky Quartet is number eighteen. Because I do like number 18 quite a bit. That, that even though it is like one of those uh, sort of stereotypical we're going to fight the communists issues, I think it's one of the best of those 
of you know those kind of early Marvel like we're going to fight the communist issues. Iron Man had quite a few good ones, but a lot of the a lot of them were like just sort of like shoehorned in to like well we got to make sure now it's time for Thor to fight the communists and so on. So yeah, from from eighteen to twenty four for me is really the core of why I love Cap's uh, Cap's Kooky Quartet so much. Yeah, I agree. These are the best issues here. Uh, eighteen to twenty four are some really good stories. And I love the the uh, when when uh, when Wanda goes out to to meet the the big commissar robot and Captain America has figured out the secret and whispers in her ear. This really nice panel where you know you know uh, uh, I think it's Dick Ayers inking Don Heck just really gets this real like mischievous almost evil kind of a look on Wanda's face. She goes, "Let us begin, commissar." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the inking. We, we brought it up a little bit uh, much earlier. Over the course of these issues, in this little stretch here, Heck gets a whole bunch of different inkers. It's like every issue, you don't know, you open it up, you don't know who he's going to be inked by. He gets Dick Ayers, um, and then we get the great Wally Wood for a few issues. We get John Romita and Frank Giacoya as well, and then it gets back to Dick Ayers. For me, it's a little uneven because there's so many different inkers it does when i was reading these it really struck me just how good don heck was because you can kind of see with all these different inkers it allows you to see what heck was doing like which part of the art is his and it's really good each of the they look different they look very different in some cases from one issue to the next because of the different inking style but they all look good yeah but yeah I, they should do i think some of the some of the don heck issues have got some kind of you know hinky moments here and there uh, I mean the Dick Ayers issues, uh, but they're—I mean—they're still mostly really good. Yeah, for me, Dick Ayers is the weakest of the inkers. He—I mean—he's solid, but yeah, like if—if if I have one, like I think Ayers is the weakest inker, and if I have one complaint about Don Heck, it's some of the designs of the new characters that are being introduced are pretty boring. Particularly Power Man, you know, in issue twenty-one has a really boring outfit and just a lot of just kind of bland designs for some of these new characters. But I was looking at, at the uh, I, I was just reading the the Kang appearance and uh, you know Kang is great, but I was kind of looking at how weird like you know the the generals and uh, all those like advisors to uh, Queen Ravana and then just the soldiers. I was like looking like this is like you know futuristic space opera central casting uh so we'll get to that story in just a little bit i'm really looking forward to talking about that because for me can uh, avengers 24 is one of the best issues of the whole series but these issues we're talking about now 19 and 20 are also really good 19 we get the swordsman uh now it says right on the cover that he's a villain so that's a, apparently not supposed to be a surprise and he he decides to take a trick uh, a page out of Hawkeye's playbook and he busts into Avengers Mansion to sort of prove himself and force him to let him join the team. Now, he's not doing it because he wants to help people like Hawkeye. He's doing it because he thinks that once he gets Avengers membership, he'll be able to pull off all sorts of dastardly schemes because of his new position of power. And Wanda totally kicks his ass. He, <laughs> the swordsman, yeah. like, defeats Quicksilver and defeats Hawkeye, and then Wanda's just, like, snaps her fingers, and that's it for swordsman. He's yeah, out like a light. Some, some machine blows up, and a piece of it, like, just hits him on the back of the head, and he's unconscious. <laughs> there is no defense against the Scarlet Witch's hacks. <laughs> so after this, we get. Yeah, she's a total. Yeah, she's a total badass. She is like this. this uh, 
Avengers nineteen and twenty. Um, a lot of these I didn't. A lot of these I didn't read until fairly recently. But Avengers nineteen and twenty, I bought you know back in like the seventies. I think I paid like six dollars for a VF, a really nice looking Avengers nineteen. Took it home and then it was continued. So the next time we went to the comic book store in Indianapolis six months later, I bought part. I bought number twenty, and I really just used to read the hell out of those. They were real. They're really good. I meant to mention this earlier, but so my story is I started reading comics in '84. I started reading Avengers in 1985. My first issue is 256. And not too long after that, maybe a year later, I got for Christmas quite a bit of money that my parents had given me to invest in something. I was supposed to invest it. <laughs> Uh, so as a kid, I was like, I'm going to invest in comic books. So I sent away for a bunch of Avengers, and the issues that I sent away for with part of my money was Avengers 17 through 56 and 141 through 180. And they were missing a couple issues here and there. They were missing issue 26, I think. But I got issues This when I was like 12, just about to turn 13, in the mid-80s, I got delivered this package and I opened it up and there was Avengers 17 through 56. So I read all of these at once for the first time in the original form and I that loved awesome. this issue. That, that's uh, unbelievable. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, they're mostly lower grade, you know, uh, not too bad. They're like solid, like very good, most of them. Um, so at the time, you know, they, they were only worth a few dollars each, but I loved and these issues were uh, 19 is one of my favorites i loved issue 19 because i just really liked the swordsman i thought he was really cool um we get hawkeye's origin story here now an interesting part of hawkeye's origin uh, for those who haven't don't know his origin he basically trained in the circus with swordsman uh, they're supposed to be this team where swordsman's the swords guy and hawkeye's the bow guy and turns out that just like swordsman is trying to get in the avengers in order to pull off some dastardly schemes he's trying to train hawkeye to join him on his his uh, evil enterprises so when hawkeye finds out that swordsman is a thief and a crook and a villain uh he confronts him and the swordsman tries to kill him and leaves him for dead and doesn't realize hawkeye survived uh there's a couple interesting things here firstly this origin was later retconned when someone eventually thought to themselves why and how would an expert in swordsmanship be able to train hawkeye into becoming the world's greatest like how would he even do that why wouldn't he train him in swords like it just didn't make sense so they retconned his origin and they added a new guy named Trickshot, who was swordsman's partner and was an expert in a bow and who was the guy who actually uh taught hawkeye what to do the other interesting thing about this origin is they still actually don't give hawkeye a name yeah Get you'll name. notice that I, I call cap steve a lot of the time and uh, wanda and pietro kind of interchangeably but i never call him clint because it just it just didn't this is my this is the avengers that i read over and over again and they never call him clint so i just call him hawkeye so they only call him hawkeye and in fact uh, as far as i know and i've read all these issues multiple times he doesn't actually get his name until avengers 64 when it's revealed that his real name is clint barton everyone just calls him hawkeye there's even scenes much later on in, in the 30s and 40s where he's moved out of avengers mansion and he has uh, an apartment that he's sharing with Black Widow. And when we see their like intimate scenes of the two of them talking and arguing and stuff, she only calls him Hawkeye. 
because apparently she doesn't <laughs> doesn't actually know what his name is either. Like nobody knows what his yeah. name is. So something else that comes up in this issue continued from last issue. Captain America is once again moping about this letter that he sent to Nick Fury. Little does he know that that letter is just like moldering away unread. And through a series of unlikely events, a small time crook gets a hold of the letter and he basically sells the information to the swordsman. The swordsman sets up this trap where he tells, he sends a message to Cap saying, Hey, it's shield. Uh, we, we love you too. Thanks for, for being so enthusiastic. Uh, I have a note. I have a note about Captain America, you know, where he's jumping up and down. He's not just, Oh, great. He's jumping up and down. (laughs) He's like, he's cartwheels. Oh, Nick, Nick wants me. (laughs) Yeah. It's embarrassing. It's like, it's funny because Captain America in these issues, it's like, he's only sticking around with the team because he feels an obligation to, but he actually just wants to ditch them just as bad as the rest of the Avengers wanted to quit. Like nobody wants to be an Avenger really, except for basically Wanda and Hawkeye. (laughs) So Captain America goes off to his uh, tryst with Nick Fury. Only it turns out that it's, it's actually swordsman waiting and he stumbles right in the swordsman's trap and the swordsman totally thrashes him senseless. Yeah. (laughs) At the end of the issue, the rest of the Avengers like show up to save Cap because even though Hawkeye has been like trashing Cap mercilessly through these these three issues here, you know, he is he's still like he has a code here and he's kind of I don't want to say he's all talk, but he's mostly talk. So even though he like is kind of resentful of Cap and everything, he still is like, okay, we can't just let Cap get his ass kicked. We he's an Avenger too, so we're gonna go save him. Uh, so they do. They they go or well they don't actually. <laughs> Captain America gets chucked off of a building. No, he right? jumps. Rather than like let the Avengers surrender, he like yeah. pitches himself off the building. But that's a cliffhanger that will be resolved next episode. Thanks once again for joining us here on the Classic Comics Forum podcast. I'd also like to thank Hoosier X for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Next episode, Hoosier X and I will conclude our look at Cap's Kooky Quartet with a breakdown of issues 20 through 28. So join us then, and as always, you can visit us online at classiccomics.org to join in the conversation.